Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Are you a novelist, a memoirist? Do you have a collection of short stories? Do you need to have your book edited? Do you need someone to give you an opinion on it? Do you need a careful reader to give it a careful read? Go to marcydermansky.com and find out more. Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. She's an editor. You can hire her. She'll make your book better. She'll help you get your writing into shape. marcydermansky.com. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, here everybody, here we go again. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Sarah Manguso. She returns to the podcast after very nearly 400 episodes, she was here in March of 2012 for episode 53, and now she's back. She has a new book out. It's called 300 Arguments, available from Grey Wolf Press. She came over here uh, just yesterday, in fact, sat down. We had a conversation. It was delightful, and I'm very pleased to get to share that with you right now. So here she is, folks. This is Sarah Manguso, and her new book, one more time, is called 300 Arguments. <laughs> I can tell you that narrative is not something that comes easily to me. I don't, I don't tell a story very well or very easily. Um, essay is really a, just a, a natural register for me. Um, it also feels natural to work with relatively small compositional units. So even if I'm making a longer book like um, The Guardians or The Two Kinds of Decay, uh, there's still episodic, there's still page breaks and, you know, relatively a lot of white space. But um, while I'm while I'm making the book, um, I think I can say in general that I just, uh, I work with about <clears throat> a unit of between a sentence and a couple of pages, but generally no longer than than that. And over a period of, you know, however many months or years, I shuffle them around until I'm satisfied. And I do request input from several really excellent readers who are particularly good at narrative or particularly good at making sure things are funny enough or, you know, everybody is sort of 
her own specific filter and I apply these half a dozen filters. That's interesting. So you have like first readers or like friend editors or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call them, but yeah. you have sort of chosen them oh, yeah. like superheroes based on their yep. particular strength. Yes, absolutely. Oh. Yeah. I have um, somebody who's got great facility and long form. I have a, you know, a poet who has great facility in the line or the, you know, the one liner. Uh, and I have people who are really good at narrative sort of structural, um, things are, are more evident to them early on than they are to me necessarily. So, yeah, I mean, it's basically like applying a filter in Photoshop, except these are human brains. That makes sense though. Cause like, you know, like I, I, I've sort of heard over the years and have read from people that they'll have like a, a first reader or their spouse is their first reader or whatever, but it's rare that you would have a reader who would individually embody all of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, guess, it, it, I guess it's like having, having a spouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You we have, have our strengths and weaknesses. I should say that my spouse has an MFA in fiction, so he's, he's actually a really very, very fine early reader. Right. Um, but you know, I need other ones too. Yeah, yeah right? of course. Of course. I never like, it makes Is me that think... risque to, to add? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of ratio, like I'm picturing you amassing a lot of a lot more words than actually wind up in your books and that a lot winds up on the cutting room floor. Is that the way that it actually looks in practice? It, it feels that way to me. It probably wouldn't look that way to you because you're a writer of novels. And I always assume that novelists are people who just churn out, you know, like type page after page after page and don't mind throwing out a hundred pages. I do. I have a kind of I don't know, it's either miserliness or laziness or uh, a kind of perfectionist's attitude that is not always helpful. So I do, um, I definitely save a folder of cuts whenever, whenever I'm working on, you know, something that I know is going to turn out to be one big piece of writing, whether it's an essay or a book. And, uh, I did, I did say, I did, I did cut and throw away very many of these arguments that are just no longer. And I saved about a hundred, 150 maybe for like potentially to be used in, in future projects. I was going to say you could recombine, I mean, who knows what those become? Yeah. I mean, there are things that I've been dragging along for, you know, like four books ago, but, uh, you know, more it, the things that feel vivid and important and maybe like hastily explored or incomplete, incompletely explored are generally things that come up later in my thinking and work and find a way into whatever I'm working on. It's got to feel so good to get one of these small, like compressed jewels just right. Like it's so fun to read, you know what I'm saying? To I me, wouldn't. I thank you for the compliment of using the word jewel, but um, <laughs> no, that, that's absolutely it. And and I've definitely read iterations of this very this this very thing that you just said, and that hugely resonates with me. Yeah, there is. It absolutely is done as a way of seeking a kind of pleasure uh, to to articulate something just right. It it feels almost like an a, a kind of excretion of something that I'm trying to get out of my 
working memory or just to stop thinking about. And when you get it just right, it's done. And, it's, and, and you can go on to the next 299 things right. that you're thinking about. <laughs> but it's not necessarily like you're arriving at some answer. Sometimes it's like the statement of a lovely question. Or... Absolutely. Yeah. Just there's something that needs to be articulated that I, that I can't quite do yet that, that requires work. There are certainly people who are very fluent who I, I sort of fantasize never have this feeling because they never have this specific problem. Um, I was on a, a panel with Leslie Jameson several years ago, and I was just in such awe of her incredible fluency that I just... Um, on, I, on the page or in, in... Oh, no, in person. In person. In person, yeah. And I mean, on the page, she's exceptionally fluent too, but it... Um, she just uh, she never she never spoke haltingly, and I uh, you know I should probably ask her. Um, she's she's uh, uh, something she said is on on the cover of this uh, this new book of mine actually, and it she included it in an essay about ongoingness among other books. Um, I guess this is why I was thinking about her. I must have <laughs> looked at the cover just before I sat down. But anyway, um, that particular level of fluency I associate with just a general ease of expression. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's like for these long form writers who well, some, are exceptionally fluent. There are some writers, uh, long form or otherwise, who are exceptionally fluent on the page, but in person, not at all. Oh, you have a lot of data. Yeah, I but, just realized that. <laughs> I mean, it, it can happen. I think looked that... into their eyes and really like, <laughs> <See>? <laughs> waited, There's nothing there. waited and waited. <laughs> Ooh, that's devastating. Yeah, but I mean, like, I'm just saying, like, you know, that's a, an embarrassment of riches almost to have both. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you can be talking to somebody who can seem, you know, absent or unable to access, but then you read them and it's all there in spades, you know, yeah. so you don't necessarily have to have both. And I guess there are people who are super, uh, verbal, but if you ask them to write it down, it would be a, a yeah, jump. That's, jump that's mess. also true for sure. Um, yeah. The thing about a book is that you never know how long somebody worked on it. it, it you know, you just don't. How long do you work typically? Oh, on a book. Is there a gestation know. that's common from book to book? No, my work habits are exceptionally, irregular and have been for the past half a dozen years or so. I used to just, when I was young, I just worked all the time. It was great. It was a very, I, my life was very easy. I had no responsibilities. I, you know, I was a copy editor and I, uh, I just worked all the time. You know, I did nothing else. I just got the bare minimum and lived in little apartments with other people. And now my life is different. And it seems to me that the I think the most efficient way of working is to just work when I feel like I definitely have something to write. I mean, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any room in my life right now to sort of, you know, just set aside a few hours to you sit down and you, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I'll write something. There, that's not a thing anymore. No ritual. No, no, there, there cannot be a ritual. So when you do do the work, what time of day does it, is it just whenever you can or do oh, you, yeah, that's yeah it. whenever I can. I mean, I have a young child, you have young children. That'll do it. Um, I am the domestic parent. Um, my spouse ha works corporate hours and travels and I travel too, but you know, it's, um, there are, there's just, uh, there's a list of basic responsibilities that I need to attend to before I can really feel free enough to sit down and work. 
and that works for me. I, I can I know that that setup would probably drive many people absolutely bonkers. And in fact, I would have just jumped off a goddamn bridge if if I had to have done. You know, if if, if when I was twenty five, somebody told me, you know, someday you're just going to be one of those people who's like you know, going to the supermarket and in the parking lot, like writing something on her phone, I would have said, well, that it just can't be done. Like I can't, I can't produce work like that. But, but this kind this kind of work, um, in particular might lend itself to short bursts of time or shorter bursts of time. Oh yeah. Talking into your phone. Yeah. I should tell you that this, this book, 300 arguments was a book that was that was begun on the side while I thought I was working on a different book. And this different book is a book about Boston, about whiteness and class and bigotry in Boston that I've been trying to write about for 15 years. And I, I you know, when I talk about it to myself, I call it the Boston book. And so I was working on the Boston book, or trying to, and... I found that without even trying, I would sort of turn aside and I had these, these just, um, had, I collected maybe a hundred of the arguments before I recognized that it might be its own thing. And then I set myself this, you know, just arbitrary goal of getting to 200 and it was very easy to get to 200. And then I said, okay, I'll, maybe I'll do 300. And then I really stopped writing the Boston book yet again. And it was a lot harder to get from 200 to 300 so much so that when I got to 300, I decided I was finished. And then, um, I didn't think it was a book because, well, for two reasons, one, because it really is a very short book. And two, I, I had been highly suggestible to this idea that at this point in in my career, I should produce a long book. And I think everybody who recommended that to me was right. And I think I should have produced a long book, but um, I showed the arguments to a, a magazine editor I trust very much. And he said, this is a book. Yeah, sure. Let's, yeah, you know, take care of it. <laughs> it's a book. <laughs> Go make it. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I was very lucky that my agent and my editor who um, worked on ongoingness were both very open to the idea of developing it into a book. And then, you know, quite a bit of work happened then in the category of ordering and structuring, which is something that you, you delicately asked me and I, I sort of dodged. And I can, I can now say there were, for a while, there were seven sections with section titles. And uh, there was a great deal of shuffling between and among the sections and then I removed the section titles, and that's when it started really feeling like a book. But I can tell you that the sections were in order. <clears throat> the self, others, desire, um, art, work, failure, and death. And that about covers it. Yeah, that, right? <laughs> it's the basic human narrative. I think that's how I described it to myself. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And so why, why, tell me why, uh, when you remove these section titles, suddenly the thing started to, to congeal. Well, I, I, I was of two minds about the section titles. First of all, I, I don't like marking a book unnecessarily with epigraphs or, and I use these things all the time, I should say, but I, I really drag my feet and I, I, um, I question myself a thousand times before I include an epigraph or a section break or, you know, a section title or a chapter title. And this book really was just so much about um, non-decoration and compression that the section titles ultimately felt decorative, but they served an incredibly important purpose while I was structuring the book. And it was, you know, to use an extremely well-worked metaphor, they were the scaffolding. Yeah. And you had a thematic thematic understanding of what each argument was rooted in. Yeah. Yeah. And then when the scaffolding was removed, it, it, it cohered enough so that I, I could sign off on it. Okay. And so you talk about shuffling, like when you're trying to order these things and create that structure and that sense of like structural integrity. I'm imagining in the conception of it that you put these on note cards. No, I didn't actually. I probably should have, but I hate having, I hate having a lot of paper around. Um, it just, it's just... Uh, are you a neat person? I'm very neat. Yeah. yeah I'm very tidy. I very am Very tidy, too. I should say. Yes, you are. The studio is exceptionally tidy. <laughs> um, there is something to having things on paper for a certain number of things. When I was putting my book, The Two Kinds of Decay, in order, I had each section on paper. But that was, I don't know, maybe 80 or 100 sections. And this was 300. And there's something, I don't know, there's something that happened. It happens in my brain between 100 and 300. Like 300 is just, it was just too much. I could never, I could never be able to see the 300 cards all at once. Like they're, you know, we, we live in an old house and the rooms are small. I don't have like a giant wall where I could just tack up 300 cards. That's so what, I have a fantasy cause I'm working on I'm theoretically working on my next book mm-hmm. and it's in this very nascent stages. And I have like broad ideas about what I want to explore. Maybe one central idea, but I have all these different kinds of fascinations that I'm just pursuing. Is, it, is this how it works for you? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. you just follow you, you your nose. Broad, you go broad in the beginning. Uh, yeah, ev- absolutely everything I'm thinking about goes in. Okay. And then often um, much of it gets saved for some future book that I never write or that I might write. And you do a lot of reading. Um, yeah, it depends on the book. I did do some reading for this book um, just because there isn't a lot of, well, say if you're writing a novel, you can't just say, well, okay, I'm just going to like read all the novels. But if you are writing a collection of aphorisms, you kind of can read a 
pretty large like wedge of you know the the western aphorism canon yeah uh you know there's a couple of fat anthologies the oxford anthology is pretty good and um and then you know there are the contemporary writers who write in very small units david markson and people like don patterson and jim richardson who write actually you know who who have the chutzpah to actually call their work aphorisms um, and, uh, yeah. And so, and so I did do a bit of reading while I was writing this book, but I, um, that was a little bit of a departure for me. So you, re- you read and write and you're, you're just constantly doing everything. I mean, lately I've been, I've been in this mode cause I finished a book and then I'm like, it makes sense to me that I should be in a period of intake. Like you're sort of spent at the end of a book. Yeah. It does seem really, um, it, it yeah. When, it, when you, when you say it that way, it makes a great deal of sense, but that's not really always the way it works, though, does it? Not always. And the intake can be from, I don't know, looking at that tree or... Yeah. Just... But, but it's like, it's also like, here's the thing. I can I can be of two minds, as usual. Uh, it's like very... Just two? Just two, yeah, right. But I can be like, on the one hand, uh, this is exactly what I need to be doing. I'm spent. I just I just like barfed out a book. I need, to, I need some nourishment. I need to take in. I need to read and replenish and uh, restore... And then there's another part of me that's like, you're just avoiding getting down to work. Oh, yeah. You know, like, don't, you know, don't, yeah, don't do that. Okay. Well, it's so <laughs> easy you, to give such great <laughs> advice to others. Oh, I like that. Well, I think of it less that, um, less as a, a, a phase of intake and more like a phase of needing to let it build up in me. Yeah. And sometimes it, you know, there's a direct route of, intake to build up sometimes it just builds up by itself like well yeah i I don't know enough about your process but i I definitely write about pro like you know i have a bad feeling i'm gonna write about my bad feeling and that's that's how everything begins for me that's kind of like me too i think a lot of people it's like you're it's like the itch you got to scratch it's the painful thing right if it were set to me like an assignment like here's an idea for a novel go make it i i would just i would never do it yeah Yeah. and it's like and it's amazing too how many false starts you have to have oh i know like entire i'm I'm imagining uh i mean it's got to be the same for everybody you know but you talk about people who work in long form having to throw away 100 pages there are some people who I think can do that more easily than others. Like that's atrocious for me. <laughs> like oh, the thought of okay. doing a hundred well, pages. That makes sense to me. Or, I think it, you're, yeah, people are temperamentally able to do, to do certain things or not do them. Yeah. I mean, you got to do it if it's the right thing for the book, but with respect to your work, you know, you could, like you said, you have 150 arguments that are in a cuts file mm-hmm. or you're working on a book and you might amass you know, however many pages of argument or essay or whatever your reflection about a particular thing that might ultimately not be part yeah. of the whole. And you just, you have to dispose. Yeah. Do you really dispose or do you save on some hard drive? Somewhere? I save everything. You do. Yeah. yeah. That seems to me to be a, a sort of long form writer's tendency. That's, just, that's like a tell for me. Well, it's like, I, I you know, who knows? Like, you, I know. You, it's, like, it's like, you the can't. The thing is, I throw it away. Like, it's just gone. It's I, gone forever. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't deal. 
it just feels too untidy. I can't deal with knowing that I have, you know, 400 pages of something that's like 80% or, you know, more like 38% good. You burn it down. Oh, it is gone. I mean, I'm sure somebody could like go into the hard drive and get it, get it all back. And maybe that's what I'm relying on, but I, I never... I've never what about when you're that. what about when like uh you know Harvard buys your papers or whatever yeah every yeah people say you know they pay by the pound save everything <laughs> right. I'm still not gonna do it I, I just I, yeah yeah and also you can't really live like that can you I mean do you like hold on to things thinking like oh this would be great for the archive I just no no <laughs> no I mean maybe when I was younger I think I was a little bit yeah. more pretentious but uh I'd be <laughs> at this point if anybody wants to archive my stuff I'll be like <laughs> You sure? You know, yeah. There's well, just so much garbage gets amassed on computers these days. It's like, I feel like the archivist job has gotten a lot messier. And... That's definitely true. You know, when the McSweeney's archive was acquired, I think by the Harry Ransom Center, but I could have that wrong. That's right. Yeah. Um, one of the editors there who had been a, an old friend of mine from the very beginning said, hey, do you want to go through your emails and just make sure there's nothing that you don't want people to look at? And I had had this long, really deeply unprofessional um, email uh, habit with my editor. And I would, I would talk about this crush I had on this other writer who's also written for McSweeney. I mean, it was just, it, there was so much stuff that I had to just say, like, dude. You, we have to scrub this. You can't, yeah, you got to scrub, you got to burn this shit down. Yeah. And they did. And so, and I imagine that's what happens whether it's paper or hard drives or, you or hope, what. You hope that's what happens. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I guess I never got like a signed thing. It's not like a state secret or anything, but it, you know, it's like but it's pretty also, embarrassing. It's also like we take somebody who's like weirdly motivated to want to sift through people's emails. I guess they're searchable, but I mean. Well, don't you want to know everything about like, a writer's personal life, though, especially well, if they're dead. I'm, I did yeah, this look podcast. at you. <laughs> yeah, look at your life. Look at your I have, choices. I have hundreds of dollars of recording equipment that testifies to. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, good stuff. But I think it's I think it's more the writers, you know, in, in the sense of like sifting through an archive. It would be a writer who's probably uh, no longer with us, whose work I really revere. Then I start to get into literary biography. I, mean, I think that's the course most people take, right? You read... Sure, absolutely. But yeah. I, even then, even then, I say that, and it's like it's not like I've been into the book stacks and the archives, like sifting through. Like, yeah, it's because we have the internet. We have other people to do it for us. Exactly, it's all there. Well, okay. Speaking of other people to do it for us, it, this occur- this thought occurred to me earlier when we were talking about uh, people who write in aphorism or people who mm-hmm. write in this compressed way. One of the reasons I love it so much as a reader, I think might be because this particular form, I feel like it it might be the most generous form or among the most generous literary forms because the writer does so much for the reader. Oh, that's a really lovely way of putting it. Well, certainly the opposite could be said too. You know, the writer's giving so little and depending on the reader to extrapolate and finish and but you're boiling it down. I mean, like it has to be it has to be well done. But it's like you're saying in as few words as possible the m- big things. That's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. I wrote an essay about this very problem, this tendency of you know the general reading public 
to why did I just say that? I, I mean, I, it's about my, it's about me. It's my, it was my own problem. It was this problem of feeling 50% of the time that I was self-sabotaging, that I was wasting time, that I was, you know, doing the wrong thing for my career, that I was being lazy, that I was only writing a little bit instead of a lot, all of that. And then on the other hand, you know, all of those lovely things that you just said, I was, I was working on concision and compression. I was working in a very small form. Um, and there is this great uh, line by Charles Baxter that was included in the first sudden fiction anthology. Remember that? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, you know, these very, very short stories. And he says, no one ever said that sonnets or haiku were evidence of short attention spans. And so if you, if you take that and kind of go with it, then you, then, um, or, and I should say, I, if I take that and, and kind of go with it, then, then I would get to a place where I thought, wow, you know, it's these, these, um, very small literary forms are oracular. They are, they have to be wise. They have to be self-knowing and self-interrogating and they have to be, you know, humor is mandatory and they have to be devastating and everything, you know, it just, there is a great deal of pressure and it's also immediately apparent whether you've succeeded or failed. I mean, it's, it's really like, easy to write a boring, one boring sentence and you can't hide it anywhere. It's yeah, it's kind of like stand up. It's like the literary version oh. of stand up. It's just like they either laugh or they God, don't. I don't know how those people <laughs> do that. Um, but the, this essay that I wrote was in Harper's a year, I don't know, a year ago or two years ago. And it was about this very problem. What's it called? I think it's it's called it, it it has a number and I I confess I don't remember the number but it's something like thirty six short um, somethings about aphorism I, Jesus yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh, but yeah it's it's the aphorism essay that that was in Harper's a and couple of years ago is aphorism and pointillistic short burst literature whatever you want to call it is that what you like to read It's one of the things I like to read. Sure. The primary? Oh no, I um, no, I wouldn't say that. I I do though. Um, I do tend to be more attracted to work that is chasing perfection than work that is chasing grandeur or greatness. Um, I have decided that I'm definitely this year going to read the Golden Notebook, though. So, I, and I I believe that. Doris Lessing sort of is capable of both perfection and greatness potentially in the same work and at this on the same page of the same work. So, um, you know, I don't want to like binarize everything, but, uh, I, I, I just am very, I am attracted to the smallish side of things. Uh, I, I, I think the novel, um, the prime of Miss Jean Brody is a perfect book. I think Mrs. Dalloway is a perfect book. But then there are great books and the way that I consume them, like Anna Karenina, for example, which is something I, I again, wrote about on this essay. Anna Karenina, uh, I think nobody would, well, I, maybe you would disagree, but I, I would call that a great work. It's, 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 it's great. It's grand. It's big. It's not, um, you know, chasing perfection on the level of, of the sentence for every single sentence. And I have kind of, you know, without really trying, there, there are three passages from it that kind of knock around in my head from time to time. And that book has been reduced to those passages. One of them is about how Nikolai is crazy. And one of them is about um, 
the the scene where Anna is giving she forgets to give the gifts to her little son and then there was no time to do it and then she had to carry them back on the train perfectly wrapped in her lap and and then there is something about how she and Vronsky can't talk to each other without like trying to be funny and within that mode there was no way for them to talk about how much they wanted each other and I don't really remember anything else about Anna Karenina. Like, is, I, is that I know how it is for you with most with most books. I think with most long books, yes. Like, I do. I I want to seize on things on the sentence level, and I want to be able to hold that. I want to be able to just like turn that sentence over and over and over, like a little, you know, like a little worry worry bead or you know, a little, some a little stone in my hand. Well, but it's also like it's. I'm imagining because this is the way your work and other work like it feels to me when I read it is that. Uh, it registers at like chess level. It's like when you read something and it really resonates or feels really deeply true. Um, it, it's like a physical sensation. Oh, and, well, thank you for sharing that. that, that I mean, do you know what um, I'm saying? Like that's what no, you're looking for. It's immensely for. validating. Yes, absolutely. I want people to be feeling things immediately and all the time and with every sentence. And leave the rest out. Yeah, or whatever rest that is. But I mean, they... It gets difficult when you start talking about the rest because for people who are, you know, just for people with natural modes that are just bigger, that occupy more space on the page, that need more space, there is no rest of it. It's all, no, but it's like, it's all absolutely necessary. Yeah. Mrs. Dalloway shouldn't be an 80 page book, you know? Right. Uh, It's, um, yeah. So what you're advocating for, I think what we're both advocating for is just a books where there's not a wasted word. Yeah. I'm not crazy about wasted words, but then again, who are we to judge what, what's wasted? Yeah. Like it's, it's all part of a composition. Like, should we take Guernica and like trim four inches all the way around it? I don't know. No, like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's like a completely coherent piece of work. I get, I guess what I want is just perfectly made things. Things that are, you know, legibly perfect to me. Certainly there are works that I look at and I cannot read because I, I just, I don't have that facility or I don't have that facility yet. But you can't ever be perfect. So you chase that, which I think is noble. How do you not drive yourself crazy in pursuit of it? Like, when do you learn to put it down? Oh, who said I haven't driven myself crazy <laughs> seven times? But I mean, you are making books. So at some point yeah. you're, you're, you're able to let it go. Yeah. Well... You know, how does anyone ever do anything? You just kind of do it. You get tired. You get tired. Do you get? Do you just finally say "fuck mm. it, I'm done," or do you intuit like, "Okay, this no, is as I, far I as I can go"? Yeah, I definitely hang on to things until I can't improve it further. There's a wonderful line by um, Gary Lutz. He describes his project in this wonderful essay that ran in the Believer that was based on a lecture he gave at Columbia. And he said something like, um, I try to write sentences that cannot be improved upon. Or I write sentences that cannot be improved upon. And I think generally that's what Gary Lutz does. That's what that's what I'm trying trying to do. And how long will you spend on I mean, does some of these come out like like hot and fast? Like yeah, just, oh yeah. The be- do the best ones come out that way? No, well I don't know what the best ones are. There there are just there are all different types of them. Um, which was why it was necessary for me to just, you know, really wrangle with the title and, you know, what the, the just the question of what to call them. There were days that I, uh, that I would sit down and think, okay, let's see if I can write five. Wow. Let's see if I can write 10. No. Okay. 
And then there were days that I wouldn't write any, or there were days that I would try to write some and couldn't. And then, you know, and then they, they just sort of came and. And can you read what, read those words for argument again? Why, oh, sure. why, why you landed on arguments in the title? Yeah. Arguments, um, you know, it comes, it comes from a, a Latin verb that has a lot of different meanings depending on, on context. And, um, so, uh, so the Latin and the English meanings together are subject, theme, sign, mark, token, proof, hint, plot, declaration, evidence, burden, complaint, accusation, denouncement, betrayal. That sums it up. Those yeah. along, those along with your section headings, like that's everything. <laughs> I'm very pleased with that little list. It's just, um, yeah, it was, it was perfectly, I was perfectly satisfied. Well, and it. the word arguments is just like, it's like the ultimate in compression, a single word embodying all of those things. You know? For a while, that was the frontispiece of the book. And ultimately, you know, because I'm so, I'm so, um, I'm so rigid about not wanting a lot of front and back matter in the book, although I always have some <laughs> front or back matter somehow. I have an epigraph or a notes section. Um, I don't think I've ever not had something. Um, I removed the frontispiece for this book. Um, and so, yeah, that's why that's why I've read it to you. I feel like, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking of like, like tweeting, which I don't mean to reduce anything but you know it's like it is a form of compressed writing yeah and some people take it very seriously and are trying really hard to to make it good make a sentence yeah, or a tweet some people good do amazing work on twitter yeah absolutely i find that when i'm tweeting the ones that come to me quickly and go up quickly tend to perform better mm. than the ones that i like sit there yeah. and noodle with and noodle with like, like the more time i spend the worse it is it seems like what, what does that say about I me? don't know. I would like to believe that there really is a one-to-one -one relation like that, or, or in, you know, an inverse relation. Mm, I'm not sure I believe you, though. I don't think anything is really that I mean, I, most of the time. Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, is that the way it is for you? Like, no. most of the time? Oh, no. You're... No, every sentence I've ever published is, has been overworked. <laughs> That's it. Is that true? I must be, I must be lying about that. Um, there are a couple no, arguments. I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a reviser. I'm not, I'm not one to just sort of do, you know, write it down and say it's done. Do you outline? No. You have no like. No. Whenever I outline after I've finished the outline, I feel like I'm done. Like there's no reason for me to fill it in. That's the problem with this Boston book because I keep on coming up with these great ideas for a long book and I'll outline them and. And then I'll think, yeah, well, now the rest of the work is what? Just making each of these word or, you know, section titles, 40 pages. I don't want so to do there's that. there's no discovery. At all. Exactly. Yeah. There has to be, I have to reserve some hope that I might yet discover something. Otherwise it's just, I might as well be what, I don't know, doing something that pays. <laughs> and you lived in Boston. You went to Harvard, right? I grew up and went to college in Boston. Okay. I remember that from our first conversation. And uh, I have I've limited experience in Boston. I've talked to lots of people on this show who either went to school in Boston or from Boston. I have a couple of friends who were raised there. It's a, it's a racist. There's a lot of race. Did you watch SNL this past weekend? I did last night, but I mean, it was, oh yeah, we watched it last night too. Um, you know, cause we don't stay up late with Kristen Again, Stewart. Yeah. We have young children, but, right. uh, yeah, no, there's this wonderful moment. Maybe you remember it in the weekend update and Michael Che says, 
um, Boston is the most racist city he's ever been to. And That's right. Of course, yeah, my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, yep. <laughs> what is it? Because Massachusetts, Massachusetts is sort of Massachusetts like... Massachusetts is blue. Right. It's... Um, yeah, I don't know. That's part of what I'm trying what I'm trying to write about in this book, in the, in the Boston book. Uh, and of course, for me, it was just the default way of living. You know, it was it was just the world when I was young, mm. and I knew from you know you know from a very young age, children have a very, I think, innate sense of justice and uh, of you know the, the the things that everybody should have, and. To see that, I remember just being five and six years old and seeing that it wasn't that way. It, it just there's uh, there's just this this disjunct between what you wish were real and what is real. And of, of course, you know, I'm running, I'm saying all of this from a position of such immense privilege. I mean, I, d- I didn't grow up in a refugee camp in South Sudan. I didn't. You know, I didn't. I didn't grow up on the run from you know some somebody who wanted to sell me into slavery. Um, but you know, for better or worse, this is this is the thing that I haven't yet found a way to write about. Just the environment of bigotry that you cannot that you, that you cannot just. You see, I'm I'm I can't even finish the sentence yet. I mean, clearly, I'm not. I, I haven't even begun to write this book yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get it. It's, I'm kind of in the same mode. There's b- these big topics you're, you're sort of, uh, obsessed with, or you can't get out of your mind. And yet that is a very different thing from being able to write a book about it, <laughs> having lots of thoughts about something and being able to translate that somehow into literature is that's two different beasts. Yeah. Well, for me, I'm, I'm going to have to write about my family in a way that I never have before. And that, that really is the obstacle. Uh-huh. That is my obstacle. That's tough. Yeah. I don't know. How, I don't know how people do it. I mean, you, people say, maybe it was Amy Hempel who said, write as though everyone were dead. Um, I haven't been able to do that yet. Yeah. I just did that with my novel. No one's read it. Everyone's like, can we read it? And I'm like, let's just, let's just wait. <laughs> like, do you think that if people read it, they'll recognize themselves? Oh God. Oh yeah. Really? I would imagine mm-hmm. it's pretty close to the bone. Yeah. Um, I have friends who can do that. And and just bl- blithely go on and not not be racked by guilt. <laughs> what does that say about me? I don't know. What does it say about me? I, I you know I just I don't know what else to. I guess in this for for this particular novel, I just went for broke. Um, well, it sounds like it's. I mean, a potentially but, amazing novel, or like super like navel gazy and pathetic and intolerable. Who knows? The things that are described as navel gazy are usually things that I find relatively interesting. Me although, too. although anything autobiographical written by a woman is accused of you know being navel gazy, so you know. Yeah, I like it when I like it when I can get a, a real sense of the person's like um, humanity. Yeah, like, like they're legitimate existential problems. Right. It's like there somehow, even even if it's a fiction, I mean, it it can be a fiction. There's no hard, fast rule. It doesn't have to be like straight autobiography or, um, nonfiction, but I don't know, just having a a sense of like real blood on the page, like real person, you know, dealing with that counts for a lot. Doesn't it? Um, do you think process wise, a book like the Boston book with your family in it, in a way that it has not yet been in one of your books. Uh, does that change the process? 
Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, have, has there been a, is there a similarity from one book to the next that you can see? And now you're confronted with this and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to have to do something different. It's, it does seem that if I am to write this book, I'm going to have to go about it differently. Um, I have never felt that I needed to constrain myself from, from saying a thing or naming a thing. And with this book, everything I want to say, I feel somehow constrained. I, I have begun it as a novel. I've begun it as an essay. I've begun it as a collection of essays. Um, I've begun it, 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 yeah, I just, I was going to say, you're going to write, you could always write it as a novel. Novelists always say that <laughs> as if you can just write a novel, <laughs> but you know, but you can also, I mean, I speak from experience. It could be like a novel about an essayist. Yeah, no, I know you novelists just think anyone can write a novel. And I find that so adorable. <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, I could flip it. I mean, cause I, I kind of feel like I would love to try to write something, uh, in the way, in the mode that you write in. And I have never been able to do it in a way that's satisfying to me or to reader. I do believe that people have, you know, people who make things have a natural register, a natural mode. Even one and, of your one of your arguments in the book is about that, like people saying, "Like, why don't you?" Sing? Yeah, that's the first one in the whole book. Right. That was a really important one for me. Yeah. So people, people always say you should, you know, you should try this. You know, write a novel. It's always write a novel if you haven't written a novel yet. And. uh yeah. So yeah. So would it, would it be too much if I just read that one? Because I'm trying to quote it, and I'm just, I'm yeah. So, read it. Read it, please. I mean, it's three sentences long. I might as well. Let's get it right. Try to pro yes, exactly. That okay. So this is the first one in the in the book. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. Yeah. And I, what it makes me think of, too, is how how common a, a trope it is for actors to want to make music. And I've thought a lot about this. I feel like of all the arts, everyone who's not a musician sort of wishes they were. I think there's something so attractive about being able to play an instrument and sing. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's just me, but it just, it seems like the most fun. It can uh, be fun. Um, but you're talking about actors who want to be famous musicians, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think being famous is, is like a whole separate category from wanting to be a thing, you know, like be a musician. Although here we are in LA and things, things mean wanting to do something means something different here from what it means elsewhere. Right. You want to be the best at it. You want to be, you, you you want to be Lady Gaga coming down on, you know the the football stadium suspended right. by wire and right. like having silver people all around. I started I started watching it. I can't even imagine what that must have been like live. It was. Uh, you just want to yeah. You want to be God. I don't know. That sounds. I I, I don't want to do that. Like the oh, dancing. I don't want to do it. Yeah. No, but I'm, it's very interesting. But it's like when Russell Crowe has a band and you're just like, oh, Bruce. does he really have a band? It's like yeah. 30 odd foot of grunts is the name of it. <laughs> oh, boy. So I think that's why it stuck with me because I'm like, wow, that's a terrible yeah, name for a band. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. It just seems like something that happens a lot. And I guess like another thing that's been sort of on my mind lately because um, finishing up work on a novel is like, 
like some artists, some writers, they're sort of wired, it seems, to make really loud noise, meaning they write for a mass audience. Or, you know, who, how could J.K. Rowling possibly have known that like what she was writing was going to explode into this like global thing? But it did. And then there are other writers who, to me, their work is way more valuable, but I'm of a smaller tribe of people who seems to think so. And so it makes me wonder if like, you know, like sort of like what you're saying in that argument, like there are some people who this is what they're wired to do. They work in this particular register. They write pointillistically. They write long form, expansive stuff. They're funny, whatever it is, that's their thing. And they can't change it. Yeah. And uh, it, some people can do more, more than one thing or <clears throat> this isn't to say that if you're good at writing poems, you couldn't possibly write a song, but I mean, there's like, um, there are people who are good at a lot of different things. Daniel Handler comes to mind. There are people who are just good at one thing, but they're so good at it. It's just, it's, it's sickening. It's like not in a, not in a bad way, even it's just, it's, it's overwhelming how, how good a person can be at one thing. Right. I like the idea of being that good at one thing, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't feel that I've achieved that. Um, but I, I should think... say, speaking of music and being a musician, I trained as a, as a classical pianist until I was 18 and then quit. And I was quite good, but I was never going to be great. And so that was like the first adult de decision I ever made in my life. And I made it when I was like 16 and a half. I knew I wasn't going to, you know, go on. I, I was going to go to regular college. I wasn't going to go to conservatory. And uh, it it was like a personality forming decision. How did you know that you weren't going to be great? You just know. You just you know. know. Well, uh, for me, I mean, I played in, you know, competitions and master classes with people who are great. And even just in Boston, there were people who were who were great. Like who, Berkeley who, College of Music is there, right? Like, there's like a lot of great musicians. There's any there's New England Conservatory. Oh, okay. And, uh, oh yeah, I mean, you, you see people doing the thing, and they're just like angels doing it effortlessly. And then I knew. And also, um, you know, H Harvard. Like, you, uh, for me, the experience of going to Harvard was many things, but chief among them was the experience every day of being around people who were better at you than just about everything you could do. So um, I was pre-med, but there were so many people who were just better at all those labs and all of the, all of those hourlies and tests that, you know, just at this one school, there were all these people who were better. So it was actually kind of a clarifying experience. Like I was not going to be a doctor. I was not going to be, you know, a, a million other things. And so I just, I figured out what I didn't mind doing obsessively. And that was writing poems. But that's good though. That seems like a health. That's like, that's kind of what college should be. Yeah, I guess so. It, it's, uh, you know, it's, it can be a little painful, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I came out very happy knowing that I was, there was just a, a level of not minding doing it a lot and for a very long time sustainably. That's how I felt about singing in choir and writing poems. <laughs> Those two things. <laughs> Those were my things. If you sit down at a piano today, can you play? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a piano and, uh, you know, one of those wonderful 
electronic ones that you never have to tune. Right. Um, I, uh, I'm more likely though, like I'm more likely in any given week to sing than to play. And you... for and that means like taking out my score, turning on my favorite recording of whatever piece and singing along to it. What, what kind of well, music? Well, no one's home. Um, just uh, choral music, a lot of the... I was in a professional church choir for five years, and so there's just a lot of the sacred repertoire from, you know, like the the Tudor composers up to contemporary stuff. You shy about singing? No, no. You, you I was a really intense uh, karaoke practitioner for a long time. Speaking of which, that's one of the things about Los Angeles that I often tell people is that it's the best karaoke in the world, or one of the best. Well, New York was pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm sure I New believe York you. Too. I believe you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are like bars that you go to in New York, and it was just all like Broadway people right. on a Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Like literally people who were going to perform. Like fabulous. Every other day. Just amazing. Yeah. yeah. They were the best. That's awesome. That so it was awesome. You, would you sing on this show? No. You would never do that? No. I don't really do it acapella. It's, that's not something I feel I have the temperament But you can for. sing and you can play piano. You were smart enough to go to Harvard and, and at least tow the waters of pre-med. Smart enough. Come on. Well, come on. Let's I mean... like, do, can we just unpack that for a second? <laughs> well, okay. Go ahead. Uh, that's that, you know, you know, it's not that, that simple. I, uh, my father was a day student at Harvard. And so that, you know, I sort of just squeaked in as a legacy. I, um, I inherited some money when my grandmother, my father's mother died when I was 14. So I was able to go to Harvard and not just, you know, take out, I guess it was about 20,000 a year then, but you know, I would never have been able to pay it back. I, you know, I never had like a real, you know, responsible job. Um, various other things, you know, I lived 10 miles away. It was easy to get there. Um, you know, I was a white woman at a time that it was possible to not, not be like the smartest person in the world. And it was like relatively easy to get in and, um, which is not to say that it's harder to get in now. Um, and I could kind of fake my way through the interviews uh, I could I could do fake classy in a way that I think was very important to kind of getting over the threshold. I mean, there's so there's so many things. It wasn't just like my SATs were good. Right. They were really good, but you know, they, tons of people had better SATs and didn't have the social skills to to do the interview well. They or couldn't do the fake this classy. and that, or just you know didn't have money. Is that how you got to do it? You got to do an interview to get in. Yeah, you had to do two interviews. You had to do one at the campus, and then you had to do one. Oh, yeah, yeah. With these schools, you have to do an alumnus, an, an alumni interview. No shit. So wherever you live, yeah, you you meet with an alumnus and an alumna, and they evaluate you, and they send notes to the institution. Actually, I just remembered when I lived in Iowa, I did alumni interviews because there weren't a lot of people to do it, and yeah, I get these poor kids from, you know. Johnson County, Iowa, who were applying to Harvard for the hell of it. And I don't think I recommended a single person. Really? So, yeah. So he's like shitty. I was a shitty 24 year old. <laughs> thought I just had pretty much figured everything out. <laughs> These 18 year olds just, just you know, quaking in their boots. me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, regardless, I understand everything you just said, but I guess my point is that, um, like it's an unusual collection of 
abilities, like the musical, a musical facility, um, at least enough in the math and science department to want to pursue pre-med for a lot of people who write poetry that would never even occur to them. I am a musician poet type. I'm definitely not a musician math type. There were many of those people at Harvard. And again, it was immensely clarifying. In fact, there was a group, a rooming group in my freshman dormitory, three 14 year old boys who lived upstairs and they were all, I was in math one B, which was differential equations. It was like the second semester of calculus. They were all in math 55. Okay. 14. <laughs> yes. Oh, and they were, they were great. Actually. Yeah. One of them was really terrific. Um, a couple of them were Chinese and I, I couldn't communicate with them as well as this, this American kid from New Jersey, but yeah, he was great. He had his own fax machine. He made people, he made me this lovely birthday cake. You know, it was like we were all freshmen and he just happened to be 14 and a genius. What's he doing now? Do you know? I don't actually know, but I, you know, I, I bet he's okay. He really seemed like no. He really seemed like he had his act together yeah. in every every measurable way. Okay, so despite like not, being fourteen, not like because uh, some of these kids who are super, you know, they're very no, I socially. Know. Yeah, I know. I know. I knew musical prodigies who didn't didn't uh, it didn't work out that great for them. Why? Well, I wonder why. I mean, it's just some sort of genetic thing, or like is it environmental? And they just had extra parents who pushed them really hard when they were young, or yeah, both. There's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. Yeah, I mean, you got to be careful with kids, like. When it comes to, like, like, let me ask you about your own experience with music. Was it something that you took to as a child? Yeah, definitely. No one had to push you. You I was wanted. A very, to... yeah, I was a very quick study, so that indicated to my parents, not no, not incorrectly, that I would benefit from having fancy piano lessons, and so I did, and I kept being a quick study. But you know, I, I'm lucky that I know I. Made, I made the right decision, not pursuing it. Yeah. Well, but you got to see the thing is, it's a valuable experience. You got to see. Absolutely. Yeah. It formed my brain. Right. It formed my brain. And you got to measure yourself against people who are like truly at the top of it. And when you start to see where you stand, some people might not have that vantage point, or at least might not have the, the good sense to know when they do. Yeah. It's easy to, it's easy for people, I think, to trick themselves into maybe pursuing something that's, uh, Oh, certainly, you know? Yeah. Up to a point, I guess. Um, but definitely something I think about is that when I was, when I was doing a lot of piano stuff, I was training to perfection, right? So like my project was to play things perfectly, perfect for perfect performances on perfectly tuned instruments and perfection was always the goal. And I really do think that that kind of, that may have informed the way that I, try to write, you know, I write after these very small, perfectible units rather than something more, more sprawling and looser and maybe more, more capacious and more varied. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I know. And things that makes such easy sense are probably just always categorically wrong, but it, <laughs> it, it always kind of has made sense to me. Um, yeah, I'm buying that a hundred percent. And then here's a question. Um, cause this sort of haunts me too. Uh, like, Let's say you love, like you have a facility for music. You can play very, um, proficiently. No, but, not anymore. But, but I back could. then yeah. very proficiently, the piano, you can sing all the evidence is there that you've got this and you really, let's say you really love it. Like this is what you want to do. Do you believe that absent some sort of magical gift that like 
the Mozarts of the world have. Uh, one can will themselves to a level of achievement that comes close to that. Well, what's it? What 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 do you mean by achievement? I mean, I guess I'm trying to say like, can like like how much of it is a is innate ability and just like a gift from the gods, and how much of it is attained through passion and hard work and where's the where do we fall in you know between franz the... wright the poet has a really excellent answer to this that i will i will now butcher but he says to that precise question um about poetry like do you, do you just need to really feel it or do you need to just work it and he's he said something like you need both of those things and you need them to a like almost self-erasing mortal degree and that, that's and when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's that does seem true for poets. You really need to be all in, and you need to be ill. You know, <laughs> you need to be you need to be ill. Um, yeah, I mean, I always say if I if I had in my if I had like an alternate life, I would be a professional choral singer, and I would just I you know I'd like do all the lessons and just organize my life in a completely different way. So that was my priority. It's got to feel so good to sing in a chorus. Now, I haven't done it for several years, but I did it when I was in New York before I, before I um, had my, my son. Yeah. yeah Did you ever go back to it? I hope so. Yeah. Is I would it, love to. Is it therapeutic? Does it make you feel better? Oh like, God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like not like, cause I know writing can have its moments. No, Otherwise no. we wouldn't do it, but it's not the same. No, it's like, <laughs> Physical exercise, singing, acupuncture, right? Those things, and they are deep. They are bodily experiences. Yeah, you, and you get out of yourself a little bit, yep. maybe. Yeah. Or you get yeah, into the you music. Escape. You escape. You get out for a little, a little while. Yeah, like what was I reading? It was something. It's something very simple. You know, like in, like music really uplifts. It's a really uplifting force, and especially when I think you're experiencing it in a group context. There's something to group energy. There's something to like both as a performative thing, but also as like an, uh, a witness, Yeah, you know, like that you just cannot, uh, deny. No, it's, it's so wonderful. It's a very deepening experience. I did finally write something about, I, I've been trying to write about singing and music in various modes for a while. And I did write a short essay about choral singing, about about choir. It was a letter of recommendation for the Times Magazine. They they have this wonderful series where people just recommend things that they like, that they love, yeah, that are just the most necessary to them. And I wrote one about acupuncture and one about choral singing. And Why do you uh, like acupuncture? Well, I mean, we sort of talk about choral singing, but what's up with acupuncture? Oh, acupuncture. Well, I didn't get acupuncture until I was forty, and. I had had up to that point, you know, close on to two decades of talking to psychiatrists and therapists and just trying to talk it out, talk it out of myself and never worked. Nothing, you know, it never really, really worked. Mm -hmm. And then I just went to an acupuncturist, not, not because I was at any um, sort of emergent moment in my so-called health or in my so-called journey. But, uh, I was never the same afterward. Hmm. It just, it, it felt, I felt different afterward. And you do it regularly? I try to, again, my life is very much like just trying, trying to get everything done all the time. Um, I would love to have a regular 
acupuncture um, session every month or every every week. Man, uh, I'm I'm getting settled. We I I did just move from the Bay Area back to LA in November, so it's not even been three months. Um, but I did, I, I have gotten ac- acupuncture once in those three months and it was great. It was wonderful. Do you do it? I, I've, it? I have done it for my low back. Uh-huh. Oh, for pain. Back in the day. Yeah. Like I come out, a chiropractor that I went to also yeah. did acupuncture. But so it was for specifically for pain. That, yeah. Yeah. But you're talking of this has a psychological impact for you. Oh my God. Well, it's. Where do they put the needles? Oh, it's just a different modality though. Like you go in and you are, I don't know, like one of your feet is kind of swollen and you're constipated and maybe you haven't slept great and you're like a little depressed. What are you trying to say? And, uh, you, 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 no, I'm just thinking you you can come in with this constellation of symptoms and Western doctors will be like, oh, well let's, you know, look at that bowel and look at your sleeping and. But a you know a Chinese doctor will just say, oh yeah, that's your liver chi. It's getting trapped and it's like heating up your heart. Let's fix that. And so the needles just kind of go along these meridia, you know, you know meridians. Yeah. I I don't know how it works, it's but like, I do know that this spot right here is for um, general well-being. And here I'm kind of clutching the top part of my ear, and so you can you can kind of do that. For depression just okay squeeze a little bit i will do that yeah I'm, it's, and it's free yeah so everybody just squeeze the top of your ears yeah just like for counted counted like a quick count of three but don't use you'll needles feel at better home. you'll feel better um yeah it's like it always amazes me i just went in for a physical recently and i've never been asked once by a western doctor primary care physician what do you about eat? your mood oh really yeah like no one ever is like well That's what, shocking what? yeah and, but I mean, and I think it's also, there's often just a complete absence of any entertaining of Eastern modalities in medicine yeah. as if that the entire it's other, embarrassing. yeah, like why, I mean, and, and not that Western medicine doesn't have its, it's, uh, positives, but it's like, sure. why would you not Im- investigate all of this? Like, why would you not incorporate, uh, both? I think maybe you just need a new doctor. I don't know. She was the first time I mean, she was very lovely. You know, maybe she does do this stuff, but I was like. I'm always ready for somebody to be like, what do you eat? Yeah. What do you eat? Do you, I, do you I want to really, share that? I eat healthy. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I eat healthy. Yeah. You're like a, a California guy. You know, yeah. you're like a white dude, but you've really good skin. You know, it's all, it's not all busted from the sun. Yeah. People probably just look at you and think, okay, this is going to be like a 15 minute write up. You're fine. Take some blood. That's what we did. See ya. That's what it was. Yeah. I mean, knock on wood. Yeah. Knock on wood. I was happy with it. You know, but I, uh, I also read, uh, an op-ed by Ari Emanuel and Rahm Emanuel's brother. It's like the, the third Emanuel brother. Good Lord. Who's a, who's like a, he was like at the top of the medical Obamacare pyramid or whatever in terms of policy. And he's a, okay. he's an MD, but okay. he wrote an op-ed in the New York times a few years ago saying like, don't get a regular physical. Uh-huh. Uh, it just clogs up the system. Yeah. Yeah. The odds of a blood draw from a physical yielding anything that's going to be actionable and life-saving is very, very low. That's true, yeah. So, yeah, so go when you have a complaint. Or like, I guess, go every few years. That's kind of what I did. I yeah. was like, God, it's been like three or four years since I read that. I haven't gone to the doctor since then. Like, maybe I, sh- maybe I should go. Like, that. that's, no. all, that's the only reason no. I went. yeah. That is interesting. I, I am pretty regular about the physicals. I mean, I've had some pretty dramatic health health things right. happen but uh yeah it's interesting they say like for the the well woman exam it um well 
of course, this is women's health, which is less important. <laughs> I think recently they've they've uh, modified the the annual well woman visit, at least on my insurance plan, to like the and you know the triennial well well woman visit or the quadrennial right. well woman visit. Meaning they've reduced the number of times. They, yeah, they yeah, want you me. go like once every three or four years now. Oh. And now that I'm like forty, I guess I got to get like oh, well, my prostate, all that. Yeah, kind of stuff. that's when things start to kind of uh, fall apart. Yeah. I like I have a female primary care. She doesn't want to give me a prostate exam. That's yeah, just... you go to a urologist, right? Oh, is that what you do? Uh, well, that's not what I do, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to think. Like, I feel like I, it's not like I'm trying to project too much on her. I'm just like, who wants to do that? You don't want to yeah. do that. That's kind of how I feel. You don't want to do that. Don't worry about it. But I guess someone <laughs> has to. <laughs> you don't want to offend her. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Poor thing. Um, so let's talk, uh, about, uh, knowing when you've sort of found your thing and I forget the name of the poet that you were, um, paraphrasing earlier. Oh, Franz Wright. Yeah. Franz Wright about kind of having to have both, uh, what a feeling of, of inspiration coupled with, yeah, you need the feelings and the brain. That's yeah. And the willingness saying. to work it to a mortal level. Yeah. You have to be all in. Yeah. When did you know that you were all in? In what context? As a writer. As a writer? Yeah. Like, was there a phase of your life or a project? I can't remember not being all in. I can't remember not being all in. But when you were young, were you all in in more things than you are now? I have a problem. More parts of your life? Yeah. I mean, I, this is, I mean, even to this day, one of my issues is... I think spreading myself too thin, taking on multiple creative projects like a podcast that's almost 500 episodes deep. Yeah, I have to say, I, I like scrolled down knowing that I had done this with you once before, and it was like 300 shows ago, yeah. and I thought, what is Who are you? Is he okay? You're really, yeah, you just kept doing it. It's I just kept doing it. It's astonishing, the yeah. archives that you've built. I, I like, I'm really proud of it. I think that it's a... Uh, it's a cool thing. I love having... It these. is a cool thing. It's Absolutely. an education for me. I like having the conversations and, uh, you know, the reality of doing a show like this, like I always put it, is like you got to feed the stray cats. Like if you're not putting out shows, it's hard to build an audience. You know, people people who consume podcasts regularly, like you got to give them new shows. Otherwise, they're gonna, there's a million oh, other shows out there. So That makes me nervous just thinking about... Yeah. Now I'm trying to book them all in person. Yeah, so... Yeah. It's always that and, and like an added element, but it's so, you know, so far. No, it, it really makes a huge difference to be in an actual studio with a human. I think so too. It's yeah. more fun for me. I just did one. Uh, I did an interview on Sunday, Saturday. I don't know. A few days ago. It's that sort of pre-book time. And I went to a studio and it was just like a little dark room with me in it. And I thought, oh, this is, this is what I want to do all the time. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as I got there, I was like, I, I had psyched myself out because I knew that it was just going to be recorded and patched together and you know they would take all the content and use maybe a 20th of it and i just i just kept trailing off and thinking like well you can you can make it better like you can do it over you can start saying exactly what you were just saying over and over and over again and it, it just i think it came out really artificially and and kind of it almost wooden. it almost seems like uh like the radio equivalent of uh what you do with literature like that impulse to sort of like twist it and yeah, put, it polish overworked. it. And, exactly. That's you know. exactly it. Um, how are you doing with the Trump thing? Like are you, how are you? Oh, really bad. Really, really bad. bad. My parents are really huge Trump supporters. Oh God. 
Yeah. How's that? It's it's the hardest thing in my life right now. What have you had it out with them? Yeah. You have. Yeah. It's like how do you broach that? You know, because like, it feels like something like if if you, I I understand like the not wanting to touch it just because they're your parents, but then it's like you, you got to say something, right? Or do you? Um, I did ask them. You know, they're just they are. Let's just say it, it doesn't come as a huge surprise. But I asked them outright, and they had done a very good job of not mentioning it. As as many Trump supporters did, I felt like it's yeah. like very common to keep it under the yeah. under the lid. And so I asked them, "Are you are you guys planning on voting for Trump?" And my father said, "Yes." And then we were both delicate enough to just sort of leave a, a little bit of dead air. And then we went about our business. And then I made the mistake of calling them about a, a week or two ago. And um, I had this secret—I had this secret mad wish that they would magically have just changed. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> because I thought, you know, I thought in my mind that so much ridiculous stuff has happened. These died in the wool Republicans are turning. Maybe my parents have too. Wouldn't that be the happy ending? That I just, you know, yeah. this is the thing that would happen so I don't have to write the Boston book. And so I called them and asked them and they they said, you know, I, we're very happy with what he's doing. If, if only all of these protesters would stop getting in the way, then he could really start getting something done. Yeah, I know. Uh. Well, you know, they, they think that he's going to keep them safe. And then I asked them, well, look, like I, I read the... I read the tabloid newspapers to see what what kind of, you know, version of reality is being represented and they said and my mother said, "Oh, we don't read the newspaper. We don't read a newspaper." And then I really just started screaming and I should not have I, again, I should not have called. I, I made every 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 kind of mistake. I didn't have a script. I didn't have, you know, and uh yeah, it was it was disastrous and I was depressed for weeks afterward and I'm just starting to emerge from that well I, I feel like i was talking to a buddy of mine uh, a couple days ago and i've been on sort of this media fast which i didn't which expect I admire to be. very much well i didn't expect to be i can also feel like well maybe that's you know is this really the answer for me to just shut it out it feels like a, it can feel like a form of denial so like to assuage my guilt over that i've started uh, writing by hand a letter to a congressman every day like that's my act. Okay, and if I can just be an asshole right now, um, stop doing that because mail is processed and checked for anthrax for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, really? You have to call or go in person if you want to make any kind, any kind of of noticeable change. Oh God! Yeah, stop. Stop <laughs> with the letters. Emails is email. No, a... stop emailing. Okay, it's just, just call. nonsense. Yes, you have to call and okay. you have to keep calling. And you can leave a voicemail, but you really want to try and get through to an actual person. I should say that I have never yet gotten through to an actual person, but I've left a lot of voicemails. Uh, you know, we're, we're in California, so they're, they're, you, you can kind of like gently suggest to Diane Feinstein to just kind of keep keep doing what right, you're doing right, everything right. everything just you know just just keep doing what you're just doing but i've le i left messages for senators in various other states senators who are um identified online by political analysts as being likely to turn on uh, particular issues and it gets it gets easier 
Yeah. That's so easier. I got to stop this letter. I thought I was doing oh, something good. Do not, Just a fucking waste. No, no, don't. Yeah. Okay. So my point though, my larger point, uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine and, uh, I was saying, you know, I, I just had to stop for mental and physical health reasons. I just, I was overloaded after an election year. That was, um, it's always too much. You know, every election cycle, presidential yeah. election cycle, you, I feel like I can, I'm like consuming. You from can a, very, very easily over consume. Yeah. yeah. And then the result of this, uh, at least for people like you and I, uh, has been like crazy traumatic. Like, I don't think trauma is too big of a word to describe what's happening for so many people in the country, in the world, in response to this, like the liberal whites, we liberal whites are the only people who were surprised and traumatized. Did you see, I have to bring up SNL again, but the Dave Chappelle yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if, if you think this is a big surprise, go and ask any person of color in America what they thought was going to happen. They will laugh in your fucking face. Yeah. I have a buddy who... Uh, I'm ashamed just to talk about how tra how traumatizing it feels to finally just, just name the fact that white people are so fucking racist and yeah. I have not done enough to try to make them not be so fucking racist. Hmm. And misogynist. I, I mean, yeah. that's, that's why Hillary lost... I have a buddy who, uh, he's a Indian American first generation, I want to say, uh, and was sufficiently troubled by the election to fly to Ohio on his own dime and canvas and, you know, for Hillary and knock on doors. Well, thank God for him Yeah, and everyone like him. And I was talking to him, uh, in the aftermath, we'd go to a bar and just like sit there and just talk and have drinks and he was telling me this story about being in Ohio and he's a really funny guy, but he's like painting this picture. And he was like, this is when I knew that things were going to turn. Cause when you live in Los Angeles or you live on the coast, it's like, it can be easy to oh, yeah. not have a clear picture. Oh, you know? we've got it so, so easy. Yeah. And so he's like standing in this neighborhood in suburban Cleveland and he knocks on the door and like some guy comes to the door looking like he might like have a, like shoot the guy. Yeah. Just like, you know, shoot just like a white man. dude who's like yeah. sort of in his fifties and his hair's messed up and he's got food on his shirt or mm -hmm. whatever. And, um, behind him, he said was a staircase leading upstairs. And as he's talking like a woman in like a, a nightgown with like, he said she had like enormous legs with like varicose veins was standing there and he could just see like from her kneecaps down. Mm-hmm. And she's, and he's like, hello, sir. Like earnestly, like just big up, just trying to, and like the whole time he's trying to talk to this guy, this guy's like kind of giving him the stink eye. Mm -hmm. And the woman at the top of the stairs is going, tell him to leave, tell him to leave, you know, just mm. shouting it on repeat yeah. while he's trying. I mean, he's like, it was actually like hysterically funny coming from him when he was explaining it to me. Um, and then I guess like if I'm, if I'm remembering this right at the end of the conversation or at the end of his spiel, the guy just looked at him and was like. He's going to win. <gasps> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah, I know he's yeah. going to win. Yeah. And it was like, and, and that's how my parents felt too. <sighs> yeah. No, it's like, <laughs> we're the only people who thought, you know, but I was really, I was looking up. at the data. Like, I, I mean, like I, could we be faulted? I mean, cause I felt like in 20, yeah, in 20, we had bad data, we had bad data, but also, you know, the Russian thing. The Russian Not thing, that I know what James I'm Comey. About. No, oh, but... fucking Comey! Yeah. yeah, I've had this very conversation, as I'm sure you have, a hundred times. Yeah, and here we are again. And here we are again. Yeah. So you know, stop writing letters. Start making phone calls, and and if you have time, showing up in person. Just show up. Okay. Yeah. 
go to town hall. I mean, these are things that I've never done. I'm, was it Sarah Kenzior who said on her Twitter, Americans are learning about their rights at the rate that they are losing them. And Sarah Kenzior is the most terrifying person on Twitter, Sarah but it's a must read is, is, is the most important political writer that I, I know of right now. I've been reading her for a couple of years. She, she published uh, an essay about the myth of meritocratic higher education, after which I thought I just want to read everything you ever write for the rest of your life. So I got her book. I've been reading her. And then I should have she her emerged. Oh, God. Yeah. I got to figure that out. That would it. be a wonderful. Uh, that would be a great get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but yes, I mean, she, she's emerged as, uh, as, as one of these, um, people who are able to process an immense amount of data and to recognize patterns and systems and to articulate, articulate them in such a way on Twitter that they're just legible and supported and shareable I, and shareable. Yeah. And I, I really, I can't imagine facing this without her. I'm so grateful to her. Hmm. Well, it's great to talk to you and to see you. Likewise. Um, I love your work, and I congratulate you on the new one, and I wish you well on the Boston book. Thank you so much. All right, folks, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider supporting it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This is a listener-supported endeavor, and your support helps the show continue if you want to uh, support the show another way you can write a review over at itunes that helps as well helps new listeners find the show just go to itunes and write uh, a review takes a couple of minutes that was sarah manguso her new book is called 300 arguments available now from gray wolf press you can find sarah online at sarahmanguso.com I don't have anything. I didn't have a lot to say today at the start of the show. I've been on customer service calls for an ungodly amount of time today. It's a water heater issue. Took it out of me. Feel dead inside. But it was lovely talking with Sarah. If you haven't read her work, you should check it out. I was on a uh, walk the other night with my buddy Adam. I feel like I have a lot of Adam stories lately. But we, uh, we're walking. We go for these like nightly walks. Not every night, but we go for a walk at night sometimes. <laughs> As middle-aged men do. And uh, I had my dog with me. We were talking about our dogs. Whether or not our dogs are dog aggressive. Like aggressive towards other dogs. And it, uh, my dog Walter is submissive to all dogs. Even like chihuahuas terrify him. He's terrified of everything. But my uh, my uh, my late dog Merlin, the border collie, used to get aggressive towards other dogs only in a very specific situation uh, when he had just had a bath and like his fur was sort of still damp and he smelled like shampoo. Then and only then would he be aggressive towards other uh, animals. And I mentioned this; I hadn't thought of it in years, and I mentioned it to Adam, and he was like, "Dude, that's like psychologically rich." something happening there it's fucked up and your dog goes you know it's like wet and smells like shampoo suddenly wants to attack other dogs (laughs) 
was happening there. I thought I would share that with you. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Get the app. It's easy. It's, it's fun. Everyone likes it. It's amazing. It changed your life. Adam and I were also talking about uh, laziness, torpor, if you will. And uh, we started like joking around and like wondering, like, does that apply? Is it possible that that could apply to psychotic people? Are there psychotic? Is it possible to be like really lazy and psychotic at the same time? Like, could you be a lazy serial killer? Like, you have the murderous impulse, you have the bloodlust, but you just can't motivate. <laughs> this is the sort of shit I talk about while walking my dog who's terrified of all living beings. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. You just uh, send me an email. What do you know? It's an amazing experience. So I hope you're doing well. I hope you're uh, managing your situation with a plum. You know what I mean. Hang in there. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 